Well, good morning, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. As we uh, get started here this morning, would you bow your heads with me and we're going to pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this astonishingly good news of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that as we open your word, your words would bring life to us. Lord, that our lives would be transformed, that you would fill us with hope for a great and glorious future in your presence. Amen. Well, about uh, 13 years ago, some miners were digging for copper in Chile, and they were trapped when a massive portion of the mine collapsed, completely cutting them off from the outside world. Maybe some of you remember this story. 33 men trapped 2,300 feet below ground. No light, sweltering heat, very little food. It took 17 days before they could even confirm the miners were alive. 17 days of wondering if anyone knew where they were, if anyone was coming for them, if anyone was able to rescue them. Even after the rescue was established, the men were alive. It then took another seven and a half weeks to figure out a rescue plan, for them to drill new tunnels and finally pull the men to safety. Now, the scene above ground, as you can imagine, was just incredible. To rescue these men, the engineers drilled a hole a mere 28 inches wide, just big enough to hold a a slender torpedo-shaped capsule that they then lowered 2,000 feet below ground into the chamber where the men were trapped. The rescuers nicknamed that tunnel that they dug the Hand of God, reaching down two and a half kilometers below the ground to these men. Then, one by one, they slowly raised each miner to the surface, where they emerged from this capsule covered in in dust and grime and, and their eyes blinking, dazzled by the lights and the crowds, filled with overwhelming joy at being set free. The lost were found. Those thought to be dead were raised. The captives were set free. Those living in darkness were brought up into the light. What a day that was. And as we celebrate today the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, moments like this are perhaps the closest that we can come to capturing the incredible scope of Christ's work done on our behalf. Imagine Mary's joy, we just read, uh, of her joy at seeing the risen Christ. Or the excitement of the disciples, especially Peter and John, as they ran to the tomb and they found it empty. Or the, the exaltation when they finally met him again face to face. Their risen Lord. Hallelujah. The resurrection is the single most significant moment in all of human history. Nothing else even comes close. In fact, without Good Friday and Easter Sunday, there is no Christianity. There's, there's no churches. You and I wouldn't be sitting here in our, our Sunday best. 
In fact, Sunday wouldn't mean anything at all. It would just be another day of the week. Without the resurrection, the cross, that means so much to us, would have simply faded into the mists of history as some historic relic of Roman rule. But the resurrection proves everything else that Jesus said to be true. It affirms his identity as the Son of God. It confirms his role as Messiah, our Savior. It assures us that we have been set free from the penalty of sin. The resurrection is the crowning moment of Christ's ministry. It's the ground for John's statement in his gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. And that's what I want you to hear loud and clear this morning. Jesus brings life. New life for those lost in sin. Ongoing life for those who are united together with him. And finally, eternal life for all those who have put their trust in him. Now this morning, we're going to look at each one of those in order. First, let's consider the ways in which Jesus brings new life. Now, Death Valley is perhaps one of the most intense places on earth. Dusty, dry, barren, bleak, harsh, hostile, pile up as many adjectives as you want. I've never been there, but I... Here, it is just a fearsome, brutal place. And yet, every five or ten years in the early spring, when the conditions are just right, something incredible happens. The deadly wasteland bursts into life. Millions of wildflowers appear out of the dusty, dry ground, a field of of gold and purple, Stunning life in the middle of death. And that glorious vision of a sea of wildflowers springing up out of the dry valley captures in some tiny little way the even more stunning moment when someone passes over from spiritual death into spiritual life. When someone who once lived in opposition to God now offers their life in service. To God and is born again. Such a life changing event is only made possible through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We live because He lives. That's the central message of Christianity. It's what we call the gospel. The Apostle Paul summarizes it as follows He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve and to more than 500 brothers, and then to James, and then finally to Paul himself. Now hopefully you all found on your seats a chart to detail some of the key evidence supporting the resurrection. But let me just highlight a few key points that the Apostle Paul makes here in 1 Corinthians. First, to be clear about one thing, Jesus died and was buried. He didn't faint. 
He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He wasn't executed in secret behind closed doors. Crucifixion was an intentionally public act of execution. The crowds saw him die. The women saw him die. The Roman soldiers saw him die. But even so, just to make sure, they still pierced his side with a spear. Then Pilate certified his death. Joseph of Arimathea provided a tomb and oversaw personally the wrapping of the body, along with Nicodemus and the women. The tomb was then sealed. Roman guards stationed at the door. So whatever else you may make of Jesus and his teaching, that Jesus truly died is an indisputable fact of history. Second, though, this death was no tragic accident or, or miscarriage of justice. He died for a very specific reason. Look at the text again in verse 3. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And we don't like to talk about sin. It sounds, it sounds harsh, judgmental, perhaps even outdated. But the Bible clearly states all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Now you may be thinking, look, I may not be perfect, but all things considered, I'm a pretty good person. To which I'd say, great, I am thankful for that. We need more honest, upright, kind and generous and gracious people in this world right now. But at the same time, I would want to ask, can you define good for me? Like good in comparison to what? What is your standard that you're measuring yourself against? And, and how good is good enough anyway? And how do we then compete, uh, balance competing standards of relative goodness? What happens if my standard of good doesn't meet your standard? of what's good. Our sinfulness is, is not relative to the people around us. The primary point of comparison is God himself, holy, perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, the creator of all things. So to be considered sinful is not a, a judgment on how nice you are relative to other people, but a judgment on how far short you fall, how far short we all fall, of the standard of perfect holiness demanded by God. And the punishment for that sin is death. But the good news proclaimed by the disciples is that Jesus' death was God's plan to pay the penalty for our sin. He died on your behalf. It should be us up on that cross. But he died in your place so that you could be set free. But third, and, and this is why we're here this morning, Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says. Now why is the resurrection such a big deal? Because dead people coming back to life is a big deal. Right? I wouldn't expect anyone to just blindly be like, oh, okay, of course that happened. It's completely outside our frame of reference of course there are challenges to the central tenet of our faith. 
But we've already seen some of the evidence. The first witnesses to the empty tomb and to Jesus himself were women whose testimony was considered suspect in the ancient Near East. If the story was completely made up, then why have women be the primary witnesses? How, how would someone get past the Roman guards and then manage to move the giant stone out of the way to steal the body? Or even supposing that they could accomplish that task, why take all the time and energy to unwrap the body, haul it off, and then carefully fold all the linen cloths and put them carefully back on the tomb, leaving behind the only thing that was worth any money at all? If the story is made up, how do we account for the extent of the resurrection appearances? Jesus didn't appear to just his inner circle, right? 500 other people, eyewitnesses, who could be tracked down, who could be identified and questioned and quizzed. Hundreds of other people who had the opportunity to to, to backtrack if this was all made up. Look, I could go on, but the resurrection, as incredible as it sounds, is in fact the best explanation for the known facts as we have them. And here's why this matters. None of this happened for his benefit. It's for ours. He died for your sins. He was raised for your justification. We're not rejoicing that he was saved as if he needed saving, but because by his death and resurrection, we are. We're not rejoicing because he was rescued, but because through this earth-shattering event, we are. God doesn't need the resurrection. I do. You do. And today's the day when you too can be raised to new life. The process is so simple. Jesus says, repent and believe. And so repent means simply to to completely turn away from your old way of life. If you were here on Friday, you heard Pastor Rob uh, note that feeling bad about your sin, that's good, start, but that's not enough. Confessing your sin is great, it's an important step, but it's not enough. Repentance means that you admit you've been going in completely the wrong direction, and now you want to make a complete about-face and go in God's direction instead. And that gets at the second step of this process, belief. Having repented, what does it then mean to, to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, I think of those miners, right, trapped in, in the bottom of that mine, Stepping into that teeny, tiny, narrow little capsule, resting on the floor of the mine, 2,300 feet of cable rising straight up above them. A slow, rickety elevator ride, twice the height almost of the Sears Tower. That's faith trusting that the cable will hold, that the winch won't break, that the capsule won't get stuck and the tunnel won't collapse in around them. And trusting Jesus is somewhat similar. It's an attitude of our hearts and a firm commitment 
of our will to put our lives completely into God's hands, trusting that he will likewise bring us up out of the darkness and into the light. And if you haven't done that before, you can do that right now in the quiet of your own hearts. There aren't any magic words, but perhaps praying something along these lines. God, I recognize in this moment that I have fallen short of your holy standard and deserve death. I didn't see that before, but I see it now. Forgive me for my sins. I turn away from them completely. And I put my trust now in you to save me, to rescue me, so that I might experience new life. Jesus brings life. And if that's your sincere and earnest prayer, then you have in this moment been born again to new life. But that's really just the beginning of a life of following Jesus. And so if you did pray that prayer just now, please, at some point this morning, tell someone, whoever you came with, to come talk with one of the pastors. We would love to pray with you and hear more of your story. Well, to some extent, the rest of this sermon at this point is just icing on the sort of proverbial Easter carrot cake, right? I mean, like, what else is there to say at this point? But it does actually get even better. This is so awesome because Jesus also transforms our lives on an ongoing basis, right? Consider the following words from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. He says, we've concluded this. The one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then a few verses later, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you've been born again, if you've put your trust in him, you are then a new creation The old has passed completely away, and behold, the new has come. Your old life gone, washed away completely, because Jesus died for your sins and was raised. There is no more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation, no more fear of judgment, because new life has come. But such resurrection power is not limited to some pinpoint moment in time, like like a course of antibiotics that you take for a period of time, and then once you start to feel better, you just stop. Paul's concern here is that we see the ongoing impact of the resurrection for all of life, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him for who our sake died and was raised. In other words, the gospel is something that I stand in constantly, actively, daily. It's power for living today. 
and tomorrow and every day until Jesus returns. You know, I have several friends who are doctors. And they tell me that it's more than a job. It is an all-consuming identity. Because once people find out you're a doctor, you are always on call. Right? Friends want to talk about their ailments. Family members only call to ask for medical advice. Every question and con- every conversation invariably involves someone asking you, like, hey, doc, can you look at this? You know, and it's just consuming. My wife's uncle uh, it was still uh, uh, sewing up lacerations and giving second opinions on x-rays 15, 20 years after he had retired. <laughs> but I think Paul wants us to think of our lives as Christians in much the same way, as an entire way of life. Not just a hat that we put on and take off as the needs and the moment requires. Paul's vision for followers of Jesus is a commitment to a lifestyle that consumes us completely. It fills every nook and cranny of our lives. That's what Paul's talking about in his letter to the Colossians. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, Then seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are here on earth. So what does that look like? Paul then explains. He says, look, put to death all the greedy, selfish, sinful ways in which we used to live and are still sometimes tempted to live. And instead, clothe ourselves with with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with meekness. With patience, bear with one another. Forgive each other. Let peace, let love reign in your hearts. Give thanks and glory and worship to God in all things. That's resurrection power, right? That's resurrection life. Here, now, today, not just some moment in the past, not just the promise of glorification one day in the future, but real power for living in the moment, even in the middle of the craziness of our lives, bringing meaning and purpose to the often mundane nature of our work, right? Bringing power for navigating the relational challenges of marriage and family, bringing joy and life even in the middle of our chores and our errands. The resurrection sets us free from slavery to sin. It fills us with new power from the Holy Spirit to live life differently now as a result. You know, earlier I shared that story, powerful story of the miners in Chile, rescued, and it truly was amazing. But after the initial excitement wore off, their lives went on as normal. They went back to the same marital challenges and difficulties. They continued to face the same financial pressures. They bounced around from job to job while balancing newfound, albeit limited, fame. They all faced an array of physical ailments and difficulties, illnesses. 
They battled severe psychological trauma. Although they were saved from death physically, fundamentally, they were the same people still inside. The rescue had the appearance of salvation, but it lacked the power for transformation. The old never passed away. The new never came. But Christ offers us so much more. He changes us completely from the inside out. Hearts of stone, they, they, they crumble away. Minds are renewed. New identities are formed within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that you see the world differently. You are different now. Filled with the animating power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you. It's incredible, right? But then it leads to the question, how is that going? How is that resurrection power reflected in your lives, in your preferences, in your priorities? in your actions, in your interactions with other people? And how do you see it at work in the lives of other Christians? You know, this week, can I suggest that you do something a little different? Instead of focusing on how the gospel is changing you or not, look for signs of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the people around you. However small it may be, seek it out. Take that, that little glowing ember and, and, and fan it into flames through your words of encouragement. When you see someone extend grace or offer forgiveness, fan that flame. When you see uh, your spouse or your brother or sister practice selflessness or put others first, fan that flame. That's the blessing of living in Christian community, nurturing, encouraging the life of Christ to bear fruit in the lives of other people. Look, if you've been born again, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you have been made new. Not just long ago, but still today. There is resurrection power at work within you equipping you for life in the kingdom of God. Here, now, embrace it, celebrate it, and live that life to the fullest. Now, so far, we've looked at the ways in which Jesus brings new life to the lost, and also the ways in which Jesus sustains and strengthens the life of the redeemed. But there's a third and final component we need to examine. Because the resurrection, it doesn't just have power for the past and present, but significantly, his resurrection assures us of life in the future also. Now I get it, death is not a topic many of us want to consider, especially not on, on, on Resurrection Sunday. When it comes to death, we're usually doing everything we can to avoid thinking about it, planning for it, or even considering it, which is understandable. 
The Bible refers to death as our enemy, a source of great pain and sorrow, an event which moves even Jesus to tears and anger, as if to say, this should not be, this should not happen. Because, of course, it shouldn't. Death came as the result of sin. It's a reflection of the brokenness of this world. It's a dark shadow that looms over all of creation and all of mankind. Inescapable and inevitable. It's the evil that appeared to have consumed Jesus completely on Good Friday. It's the misery that the disciples and all Jesus' followers wrestled with for days, for the days he rested in the tomb. But in the same way that that the jewelers, right, they often set diamonds against the the darkest black velvet to highlight the, the brilliance and the clarity so too does the resurrection of Jesus Christ shine so much more brightly when set against the seemingly impenetrable void of death. Because when he broke the chains of death, he not only brought us freedom from our past and power for our present, he also brought forth great promises for our future. Look with me briefly at Romans 8, verses 10 through 11. Paul says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, if you trust Jesus for your salvation, you too will experience the resurrection when Jesus returns, when he destroys every last satanic rule and authority and establishes the eternal kingdom of God forever. Contrary to all our experience, Jesus assures us that death will not have the last word. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a source of great comfort for me. Given the incredible amounts of pain and suffering and heartache and sorrow and loss around us today. Because despite all our prayers, cancer may still win the day. Age will certainly and slowly break down even the most exceptional of athletes. Neurological changes will challenge the very breast and the brightest. Hopes and dreams may never be fully realized, or we're still cut short suddenly, unexpectedly. Tragedies abound. Pain seems to look around every corner. And the reality is, if you do not know Jesus there, that is all there is to it. There is no happy ending, no glorious finale, no riding off into the sunset. As Paul tells the, Colossians, uh, the Corinthians, if the dead are not raised, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But the reason that we are here today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that first day of the week is your guarantee assuring you that death is categorically not the end. There is truly more to life than this. Because in Christ, not only do I receive the promise of dwelling in the presence of God for all of eternity, but the assurance I will do so in a brand new resurrection body. In a world where death will no longer plague us, where sin will no longer bind us, where Satan will no longer tempt us, where addictions will no longer maintain a grip on us, where pain will no longer trouble us, where suffering will no longer stake a claim on us, where tears and sorrow will no longer consume us, where loss will no longer overwhelm us. Amen? What Satan thought to be his greatest victory and turned out instead to be his utter defeat. Hallelujah! And how do we know? How can we be sure that that is true? Because Christ has already conquered death, rising from the grave, setting the captives free. And if you are in Christ, then you too will one day be raised from the dead also. This means hope for the weary and the exhausted. It redirects my gaze away from what Paul says are just light and momentary troubles and helps me keep my focus on the future, seeking life in Christ instead of life in this world. Look, I've come to realize I probably will not knock everything off my bucket list in this life. But I don't need to. Right? The resurrection helps me let go of that burden. The promise of the resurrection allows me to find contentment within the constraints placed upon me to enjoy the limited time and space allotted to me. You've heard of fear of missing out, right? And I'm here to tell you, you probably are going to miss out. But that's okay. You're not designed to see, taste, feel, experience, visit, everything that there is. You are given a teeny, tiny slice of life to enjoy. But the promise of the resurrection allows you to relax into those limitations instead of worrying and trying to flee them. Without the resurrection, you're left with simply a mad scramble to try and grab as much enjoyment out of this world as you can because you never know when it might end. But Christ sets us free from that mad pursuit, giving us abundant life, even if it's limited life, because one day it will be an eternal life. Now, 24 years ago, before we had any kids, my wife and I were hiking way up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, so like nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet above sea level. There's still snow on the ground, even in August. And we came to this isolated high 
mountain lake fed by a tiny little stream, which we trace back to, to a, a spring in the rock, in the side of the mountain. I'd never seen anything like this before in my life. Water just, just bubbling up out of the rocks. And this gentle but persistent flow. Ice cold, crystal clear water overflowing the rocks and then running gently down into the lake. And you could put your hand over the rock to try and sort of stop the flow of water and feel this steady but constant pressure of water pushing back. There's no stopping it. There's no containing it. There's no, there's no reining it in. And nor would you want to. On a hot summer day after a long hike, it was a gift to drink deeply from this icy, cold water. It's an image that Jesus used frequently. To the Samaritan woman, separated from God by her sin, Jesus held out the hope of living water that could change her life. At the feast in Jerusalem, Jesus proclaimed that whoever would believe in him would experience ongoing rivers of living water flowing out of their hearts. Speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit to bring transformation. The Apostle John in Revelation, he looked forward to the day when Jesus, the Lamb, would, would shepherd and guide his people to springs of living water. And finally, Jesus himself, in speaking of his own return, promised promised to the thirsty he would give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus came to bring life, new life, abundant life, eternal life. So come this morning. Let us drink deeply from those living waters and celebrate that gift together this Resurrection Sunday. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so, to say we're thankful, it doesn't even begin to capture what we feel in this moment. Awe, amazement, astonishment. Lord, if we give everything of our lives to you today in worship, in adoration, in praise, in thankfulness, in amazement at this gift of new life that you have set before us. And Lord, I pray that we would take this resurrection power out into our homes and our families and our communities as you grow and expand your kingdom through your Holy Spirit and for your glory until all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.